HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Heritage Radio Network on Tour is made possible by the support of the Julia Child Foundation. Welcome to this special episode of Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Kat Johnson, and today I'm not too far away from Bushwick. I'm just across the East River at the James Beard House to speak with Matthew Bassford, the executive chef at Canoe in Atlanta, and Nick Leahy, the chef partner at Salt Yard, also in Atlanta. We will be talking about their dinner tonight at the James Beard House, titled Town and Country. Guys, thanks for sitting down with me before your dinner today. Thanks for sitting down with us. So tell me a little bit about um, each of your backgrounds. The dinner tonight is titled Town and Country, and you're from Atlanta, which is a big town surrounded by a lot of country, so it makes a lot of sense. But neither of you guys are from Atlanta, right? No, we're both uh, we're both imports. So uh, I grew up in Bermuda in England and moved to Atlanta. And uh, I grew up in Australia and I picked up an American accent very quickly. Yeah, you did. He's got the unique New Orleans Australia hybrid accent mashup going on. Yeah. So Matthew, I'll start with you since uh, Nick just mentioned growing up in uh, I mean spending some time in New Orleans. Yep. Tell me a little bit about how you went from. Australia to New Orleans and then to Atlanta. Uh, so I qualified as a chef in 2002 in Australia after doing a four-year apprenticeship um, in the Barossa Valley, which was a great experience, and then left there just to travel to New Orleans for experience and to see the world. Uh, I met my wife two months after I moved there, and you know we lived there for three and a half years, and then a little thing called Katrina came through and decided that we needed to move to Atlanta. And I walked into Canoe about two weeks after uh, I moved to Atlanta. And then we I've been there for the last 13 years. So tell me more about this uh, taste, this tasting competition that you did, um, Tasting Australia. What What is that like? And is it similar to anything that we do here in the States? Uh, I don't know if it's similar to anything you do over here in the States. But in Australia, it's a organization. Well, it's a competition. Uh, and it basically competes regional Australian chefs against each other. Um, so you do a menu paired to wines from the region that you're from. Um, it's always four courses, but then it's based on service also as well as the food and the flavors. And so I competed in 1999 and 2001 for Team Barossa Valley. We finished second by point oh three of a point out of 1,500 points one year and like one point. Uh, another year so and then when I left they finally figured it out and actually won gold so maybe I was the the weak link that's that slowed them down but 
no, we, you know, it was a great experience and great fun. And um, after you moved to New Orleans, you started working at Dominique's. Yes. Um, what was that like? And what was some of your fondest memories of working in the New Orleans food scene? Uh, you know, New Orleans is a great scene. Uh, it's got a lot of history and a lot of character. Uh, so at Dominique's, it was more of a provincial French style, but I got to work with a lot of other international chefs. So, you know, we had a lot of uh, multicultural aspects going on. So there's a lot of there's some Argentinians working there, some French guys, a couple Australian guys, um, some guys from Vietnam. So you had a nice mixing pot of just different ways of doing things and how things are done around the world. Um, but yeah, you, you know, it has that history and heritage that it, I still use to this day. Um, you know, you take little bits and pieces from everywhere you go, and that's, you know, I've taken some of that aspect from it, incorporated a little bit into this menu, but also, you know, in things I do at Canoe. Um, why, why did you, did you choose to move to Atlanta after Katrina, or was that just where, you know, you ended up? Uh, it was kind of forced upon. Um, you know, it was either Galveston or Atlanta. You know, they always say you want to go west. <laughs> they always say you want to go west, uh, you know, when a storm comes through. So we had a hotel room booked in Galveston. But a friend of mine lives in Atlanta, and he said, you know, just come up here. My parents actually arrived from Australia the night before Katrina came through. Um, so they were on, like, a world trip. And, you know, you didn't really hear about Katrina until that Friday before it hit that Monday. It wasn't kind of on anyone's... Uh, radar, uh, so it came through. A friend of my wife's brother is actually a pilot boat captain, um, and he gave us the heads up that it's not going to be good. So we had to get out of there quick, and we kind of had dinner at uh, Arnold's that night. And then I, after dinner, I told my parents that we got to be back here in an hour to pick you up from the hotel, and we're taking an eight-hour drive across part of the southern United States uh, with a dog, a cat, and all their luggage. So it was wow, you know. But you know, I think Atlanta was obviously the the choice to do. Yeah, and you are now at Canoe, and you've been there since 2005. Correct. Um, tell me a little bit about kind of, you start you started there basically a week or so after you moved to Atlanta. You started as a line cook? Correct. Um, what was it like kind of working up through the ranks at Canoe? Uh, it was good. You know, you see a lot of people, and, you know, Canoe's a, a breeding ground for a lot of chefs in Atlanta, and, um, you know, you have that history and heritage there also what they do and what it stands for and uh, but you know working up the lines in that ranks was you know it's it's kind of a feat in its own right but it's also very humbling um you know i've worked there like i said 14 or 12 years and i've never had two days that have ever been the same and there's always a new problem to solve or something different to you know take your attention so i just want to read a little bit about um this description of canoe, which I think is great, um, tucked away along the peaceful banks of the Chattahoochee River, yet conveniently located in the Atlanta community of Vinings, lies one of the country's most acclaimed restaurants. Here, the river rolls past a tranquil waterfront that is enhanced by a natural yet manicured landscape, offering colorful gardens, crisp white special event tents, and meandering walkways that are the perfect spot for a before or after dinner stroll. Um, I used to live very close to Canoe, actually, and I loved riding by and always seeing the, the river. Um, it's kind of it's kind of almost like Atlanta's River Cafe, I think. Yeah. Um, how do you keep an iconic restaurant like that fresh and exciting for people that live in the neighborhood? I think we just try new things. And, you know, like I said, we get new ingredients. You know, we're starting to sell kangaroo now, so I'm trying to bring a little bit of that Australian aspect with me. Um, but I think it's just 
service is the biggest key for what we do. Um, you know, you're guaranteed to get, I would say, top five best service in the city against any kind of other restaurant that we have, which is makes my life a lot easier. So, but you know, it's that memories that people can create at the restaurant is what brings people back more. So, you know, it's that iconic restaurant where you can go for your birthday, your anniversary, and a lot of people that return are people that have come for you know grandma's 80th birthday and then they decided they want to have their you know wedding ceremony there and then they have their anniversaries and other birthdays and christmas is very special for a lot of people and so you know people have that memory behind which um i feel that we kind of strive to do and make sure that's the level that we try and make every time we do what we do yeah so turning to nick now um on the james beard side it, it said that where Canoe might be more of the traditional um, restaurant that Salt Yard is a little more modern and sleek. Um, so I kind of want to ask you to start off about some of your influences because you, you're doing a, a slightly different service style to maybe the Atlanta um, area. Yeah, so we do, um, we call it seasonal small plates. So it's, it's the tapas format. So it's that sort of sharing menu full of small plates, but instead of just being strictly Spanish, we just cook whatever's in season and we draw uh, inspiration from all over the world. Um, I grew up doing a lot of traveling. I have a very like international family. So I got to, I'm a, my mother was a, a diplomat's daughter. So she lived even more places than I did. So she always introduced a bunch of funky flavors when I was growing up. So I think that comes into the cuisine at Salt Yard a lot. Were you at any point a picky eater growing up? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they have pictures of me in my high chair with all kind of food smeared all over my face. I was always a excited eater, I would say. Probably. That's awesome. I just watched the Jeremiah Tower documentary, mm -hmm. and it reminds me kind of that, how yeah. he was like, I was drinking beef consomme on a, like a cruise ship when he was six or something. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really cool. Um, so tell me a little bit more about the other places that you worked in Atlanta. Um, you, one of the places was the food studio. Yeah, I worked at the food studio for almost four years. Uh, a hugely influential uh, stop in my career not just because um, it was it was the first like fine dining restaurant that I worked at um, and it was at the time uh, before Atlanta had really made a lot of sort of leaps and bounds in the culinary scenes so there was only a handful of Atlanta uh, restaurants that were worth working at you know canoe aria bacchanalia food studio was probably about it um, and I worked for chef chip Ulbrick who uh, certainly my mentor uh one of two of the most influential people in my career not just as a culinary skills but you know how to be a good person a good man all those kind of things yeah and then after a stint in atlanta you then went to london yeah so um my wife and i had always said that before we turned 30 we were going to quit our jobs and go traveling we missed the 30 mark by a little bit but my sister was getting married in uh the south of france so we said it's a pretty good cue. Might as well take the, the signs that the universe is giving us. So we quit our jobs, went to my sister's wedding, and then went traveling for like seven months. And then when the uh, <laughs> the travel funds ran out, we moved to uh, London because I have dual citizenship. Um, and I think 48 hours after landing in London, I was uh, the chef at Dalesford. So. And Dalesford, um, they were passionate about cooking with farm fresh and local ingredients. Um, and they had they have farms that they yeah, also yeah so they're like next level um, you know it really sort of helped 
take uh, my commitment to it to another level. But they have a giant farm in Gloucester, which is sort of like the middle of England, and it supplies over 90% of the ingredients to the, the London restaurants. So, like, it was all our own proteins, lamb, venison, duck, chickens, beef, uh pig uh you know we'd have to be calling and talking to the guys about when it was time to cull some more animals i was talking to the guy right before i went into service about what vegetables to pick for the next day they had a cheese maker so he'd take 14 different kind of cheeses that he made and um he was winning like taste awards in europe and i'd get to go like, on the train up to the farm on my days off and make cheese with him it was a it was an inspirational place and have you been able or are you striving to kind of recreate that system in your <laughs> restaurant in Atlanta? Uh, that ethos for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I need to make a little bit more money before I can buy my farm myself. But, you know, Fair. there's an end goal, right? <laughs> um, I also wanted to ask you about um, you being the first chef ever to be elected to the Board of Trustees for Meals on Wheels. Yeah, it was a, it was a big honor. I, I'd sort of been involved doing events and dinners for Meals on Wheels. And um, Jeff, who is the CEO, um, what was it, three, three years ago and change? invited me to lunch and was like, do you want to become more involved? And I just sort of looked at him and I was like, more involved? I'm a chef. What, like, you know, I already do the dinners. And he was like, well, would you be willing to be on the board? Um, and I said, sure. What does it entail? Um, and for the most part, it still is pretty much focused on the dinners and all that kind of stuff. I help sort of organize a lot of the events for him. Um, but it's also been about partnerships. So we've been able to make some really cool partnerships between like Meals on Wheels and some of the local farmers markets where specifically Peachtree Road Farmers Market, we have a program where the farmers sell the leftover vegetables or like the ones that don't sell to Meals on Wheels for like a dollar a pound. And then we also have chefs come and do pop-ups at the market that actually create the money. So it's like a zero cost system for the Meals on Wheels and they end up getting to deliver fresh local produce to the seniors at no cost to anyone, which is pretty awesome. Awesome. Um, so Matt, I have one other question for you before okay. we kind of get into the meat of the menu and yeah. breaking that all down. Um, I read that you are a participant in Ironman triathlon races. I am. Um, why, why do you, is that important to you as a chef? I don't, it's an important for me to keep some kind of, uh, healthy regime. Um, it's more of a, a mental battle. You know, I did it, I did Ironman Boulder 2015 with my wife um and it's one of those things that we started doing tri uh triathlons about three years before that you know she just wanted to try one i've done one when i was 12 and so we did a sprint triathlon so it's you know it's a 400 meter swim and a 13 mile bike ride and a 3.1 mile run which is it seems like a lot but you know if you compare it to the ironman which is a 2.4 mile swim 112 miles of biking and a marathon just because you're bored at the end of the day um you know, and it's something that I didn't think I could do, and I got together with some people and friends of ours that had done it before and had a coach work out a plan. He called it the bare minimum plan, which was basically if you do just this, you will finish, and that was only my goal. Um, my goal actually was to make sure I beat my wife and finish. That was about <laughs> – that was the only two criterion that I had. And, um, you know, it's it took me 15 hours to finish it all, um, but, you know – the top guy top people are you know they're taking about eight hours eight and a half hours but it's also you know it's one of the only sporting events where as an amateur you compete on the same playing field as a professional at the same time um and everyone's very supportive and you know it takes a whole different you know it's a whole different group of people that you have people that are very serious and are fast and you have people like me that are just looking to compete and finish and take it off their bucket list and so 
it was just something we decided to do together. And, you know, it's a good way to spend time with my wife since I work a lot. And so, you know, spending nine, ten hours on a bike on a Sunday afternoon apparently is a good idea for some people. Um, you know, when you learn the aspect of if it ain't raining, you're not training. So you just, you know, if it's when you're coach, when you're out bike riding and you hear lightning strikes, it's less than five miles. You're okay. Keep going. <laughs> and so, you know, it's that kind of aspect. But it was just something that I decided to do. I don't know if I'll do another one. I might. Um, but, yeah, that's my Ironman that's story. Awesome. It's a lot more productive than, like, binge watching a show on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, um, but on binge watching off, is so a lot more fun. That's true. A lot more relaxing. Um, okay, so before we get into like dish by dish of this menu, which looks awesome, I wanted to ask you both um, how you decided to team up to do this dinner in uh, New York. I guess that one's mine. Um, so it, it actually started uh, a few years ago. We came up and did a dinner lab dinner together uh, and we just enjoyed working together. We work well together. Um, I think we have sort of a same sense of humor, slightly uh, sarcastic and all that kind of stuff. So we just, we play well together. Um, and we sort of um, devised the, the theme of the menu uh, to sort of be like a sort of juxtaposition of the ourselves, our styles, and our restaurants. So you kind of get a little bit of a back and forth, which I think is kind of fun. With lots of other influences as well from yeah. your backgrounds. Oh, and Nick, I wanted to, I almost forgot to ask you, you recently did a, a trip, a retreat with the James Beard Foundation? Yeah, I got to go um, to the James Beard Boot Camp up in um, New York. It was pretty awesome. So the boot camp's all about uh, empowering chefs to make their voice more effective because I think as chefs, as a profession, we, we have a good chance um, to sort of spread uh, our views or our opinions on, on whatever topics are important to us. But I think sometimes we get stuck in sort of like the minutia of just doing a dinner for a charity or keeping it on such a small level um, that we miss opportunities to make our voices louder. And it was really about how to how to go after sort of bigger prizes um, on the causes that matter to you. Awesome. Like so. the work you're doing with Mills on Wheels. Totally. Okay. So and what sustainable I'm seafood. Oh, nice. <laughs> Love sustainable. <laughs> do you work with the a certain organization on sustainable seafood? So I'm working to get certified with Smart Catch and do all that cool. kind of stuff. We've been committed to it for a long time, and it, I think it's a very important thing that we need to start taking seriously. Yeah. Um, awesome. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'll I'll just kind of go through the menu with each dish, and you guys tell me which one of you is preparing that tonight, and then you know what's interesting about the ingredients or the influence or the technique that you're using in the dish. I bet you can guess the first one. I think so too. The first one, this is, these are our uh, past, past hors d'oeuvres or canapes. Um, the, it's an Australian octopus Kung Pao with Asian flavors. So, uh, Australian octopus is actually from Western Australia. Um, and it's a different species of octopus than you see on both the West coast of the U S oh, sorry, the East coast of the U S and out of Spain. It's a lot more tender. It's, for me, more flavorful and a lot easier to use. So, you know, we blanch it three times in boiling water, and then we just cook it real low and slow in a court beyond for about 35 to 40 minutes. We peel off all the excess skin. I marinate it overnight in our house-made Kung Pao sauce, which is actually gochujang-based. So it's got burning more of that funkiness behind it. It's a little bit sweet, a little bit spicy. And then we dice it up into small pieces we quickly flash fry it in some rice flour so it gets a little bit of crispy uh action going on and then we toss that with some more of the kung pao finish with a little bit of broccoli and some uh blackened peanuts 
Yum. Now, tell me why is it important to blanch the octopus three times? Uh, it just helps set the skin a little bit, and it you know locks in all that flavor. And then it just you know some people take a long time to cook it. This stuff is the quality of the ingredient is a lot more tender, um, and so it takes less time to cook it. Cool. All right, our next um, hors d'oeuvre is pickled Georgia white shrimp with crab aioli and roe. That one's mine. <laughs> um, so we use uh, the white shrimp. They're really nice and sweet. Um, and we use them a lot at the restaurant. And pickling just gives them... It, we don't do like a really hard pickle on them, so they have like this really nice sort of soft, buttery texture to them still. And then we make the aioli with... Um, we put a little bit of crab meat, a little bit of crab roe, and then a little bit of tobiko in there. So it's got this sort of like funky oceanic sort of thing going on that plays really nicely with the sweetness of the shrimp cool and where did the shrimp come from uh we get our shrimp from timmy Stubbs. awesome he drives up from brunswick georgia a couple times a week in yeah. his pickup truck with his cooler on the back but he's a very uh, popular guy in yeah he's awesome <laughs> he's a character too but yeah he's cool. awesome um the next one is grass-fed beef pie with beet ketchup <clears throat> Okay, so that's me. Uh, you know, I've kind of started with the whole Australian feel. So the grass bit, is, so it's essentially an Australian meat pie that I use. I actually use some Georgia-grown uh, grass-fed beef that I ground up and cook into a pie mixture that's got some tomato and horseradish, uh, sorry, tomato and Worcestershire and some allspice, a little bit of cinnamon and clove. It gets cooked in puff pastry, and then I finish it with a beet ketchup. So we use the same kind of flavor profiles that you do with a tomato ketchup, but instead we use beets. So it's beets and apple cider and cider vinegar, a little bit of nutmeg, and then salt and pepper, and that's just going to be served uh, with the grass-fed beef pie. Delicious. Okay, and the last order is brulee Georgia figs with blue cheese. So uh, this one kind of fits the ethos of uh, what we try to do at Salt Yard, uh, which is just you know, get really good ingredients and, and don't mess them up. So, you know, it's the height of the season for Georgia figs. They're absolutely beautiful right now. Um, so doing something where you can just elevate the flavor of that. So you take a little bit of uh, blue cheese, put it in the middle, and then sugar in the raw and blowtorch, and you get this, like, cr crunchy sugar crust and the funkiness of the cheese and the sweet, like, you know, aromaticness of the fig. It's a, a nice, perfect bite. Awesome. And the pairings for um, the hors d'oeuvres are going to be the Bellafino Prosecco and Richland Rum Hemingway Daiquiri. I really appreciate the daiquiri choice. <laughs> Love it. Okay. I really appreciated being part of the testing process when <laughs> Matt was making it. So, you know, awesome. I took one for the team there. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Such a brave soul. <laughs> um, okay. So moving on to the dinner, the first course is a lump golf crab with chili, melon, and sweet and sour shallot. That one's mine. Um, so again, you know, it's kind of highlighting the freshness of the crab. We get um, fresh crab, so it's never been pasteurized or anything like that. So it actually has more actual crab flavor to it. Um, and then we mix it really simply with just some uh, Atlanta fresh yogurt. That's a nice, like, high-fat, uh, tangy yogurt. Um, and then we take a couple different kinds of melons, cut them out, and marinate them in a caipirinho pepper vinegar that we make with a little bit of fresh Killian pepper. So you sort of get this sweet, acidic uh, spiciness to play off of the creaminess in the crab. And then we do uh, sweet and sour shallots. So you get vinegar, sugar, honey, and salt, and a splash of wine in there. So it sort of gives you 
uh, a different burst of flavor in the bite. And then uh, we make a quick little um, agua fresca with the melon that was left from cutting out the pieces so that you're not wasting all that good stuff. That goes on the bottom of the plate. And then we put some um, puffed farro. It's kind of like a, kind of tastes like a whole wheat rice crispy um, on top for a little texture. That sounds awesome. And, and I, Grenache Blanc is the pairing. Sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to cut you off there. No, go ahead. Um, I, I think Grenache Blancs are just the perfect um, seafood, especially shellfish pairing. And this is a really nice one. And it's kind of fun because you see a lot more Grenache Blanc grown in Europe than you do domestically. But this is a Californian one. And they did a really nice job with it. Awesome. Do you and serve we that? sell a lot of it. Do you, Yeah, you sell it at your restaurant? <laughs> yeah. Great. My staff all knows, like, anytime we run a... Uh, shellfish special or anything like that. And I'm like, what would you pair with this? They're just like, epiphany. <laughs> it's like a yeah. easy answer. Yeah. Cool. It's the layup. <laughs> okay. The second course is going to be um, our friends, Springer Mountain Farms chicken. It's a chicken liver ravioli with waypoint fondue, parsley, radish, and lemon. That one's me again. Um, so first of all, thank you Springer Mountain for uh, helping us come up here. Uh, they're always incredibly generous and this is no, no different from usual. Um, I always have their livers on the menu. I'm a huge proponent of the chicken liver. I think it's the most underrated part of the animal. It's delicious. And springers are especially good because they're very clean tasting. You know, with commodity chicken, you kind of get some of that irony. The thing that people don't like about liver, but when you have a really nice quality liver like springers, it, it's nice and clean. So we take the chicken livers and uh, poach them in duck fat because, you know, my, my French side of me likes to poach everything in duck fat. We also take some chicken thighs and poach them in duck fat puree it all up with a little bit of fromage blanc uh white pepper and smoked paprika so you kind of make this like pate filling cool it down and then uh form the ravioli around it it's, it's not the easiest ravioli to make because mm-hmm. it's you know a little bit delicate but it's, it's really nice and sort of rich and earthy uh so to cut through that we make a very simple parsley coulis that's uh cream shallot garlic and uh parsley it's just a really nice bright green color and flavor and then Waypoint is from a dairy uh, in uh, Sandy Springs, Atlanta. So it's called Cali Road Creamery. Mm-hmm. It's just a really nice, it's kind of like a young brie, um, but it's got a good uh, sort of richness to it. We make a, a white wine cream fondue and then buzz that into it in the blender. So you get this really, and we just sort of coat that over the top of the ravioli. Awesome. And then what about the just wine pairing? Sh- uh, so it's a pretty big, bold um, dish between the the liver and the, the rich cheese and all that kind of stuff. So I think it needs a pretty big uh, wine. So this the, it's actually kind of early in the meal for a wine as big as the Belgrave, but it's it's a great wine and like the minerality uh, of the wine and like how much it has going on, the depth of it plays really well with the liver. Perfect. That, I like bold choices. Um, At the, least 29 of the 30 people who tried it when we tested out the menu thought so. One cool. person said it was far too big. but You can't make everybody happy. <laughs> um, the third course is going to be a roasted Rosewood Farms goat barbecue leg with sorghum and greens. Uh, yeah, so that's me. Um, so Rosewood Farms is a lady that raises farms kind of as a hobby more so than a means of income um, but it's you know she raises them to be processed while they're still very young so the meat's very tender but still has that slight gaminess of lamb but it i mean sorry of goat but it has um you know it eats you could eat the leg almost raw and it still would eat like a parcho and be very melt in your mouth great so i've prepared it it's almost the whole goat being cooked so the loin has been stuffed with a little bit of goat sausage and then wrapped in call fat and that'll be cooked sous vide and then seared off just to get a nice crisp outer edge. 
the legs. I broke the leg muscles down into each individual muscle, brined it, smoked it on a big green egg for about four and a half, five hours. And that's going to be mixed with a little bit of barbecue sauce. We got some greens that are going to be cooked down in our pot liquor base. So we use some baby kale and just cook it down real quick. So it still has that vibrancy of the young kale, but it has that nice flavor and depth from pot liquor. And then it's finished with a nice uh, sorghum syrup glaze. Um, and that's paired with the Christum uh, Cuvée Pinot. Um, we chose that mainly Kevin Cornish and myself got together and we tried to work out a nice, it's a young wine, but it drinks now, tastes great and pairs perfectly with that little bit of smoke and a little bit of sweetness from the goat. Awesome. And then I have a feeling I also know who did the fourth course. It's a grilled kangaroo loin with ba- black garlic ala goat, maitake and blueberries. Yeah. So again, um, Exactly. Uh, so, you know, kangaroo is something we serve on the menu right now at Canoe. It's been on there for about the last two years. I was told apparently there may be only one of five people that have served kangaroo at the Beard House. So, you know, it's kind of a, a mystery ingredient up here. But, you know, I th- it should be the next big protein in the U.S. because it's very lean, very flavorful. It's actually the leanest red meat in the world. Mm. Um, once you get past that whole picture of Skippy bouncing around, it's actually really good. Um, you know, if you eat venison, you'll eat kangaroo. The mm-hmm. flavor is very similar. It's a little drier, though. It's kind of like if you combine lamb and venison together, you'd get the textural flavor components of kangaroo. So that's just going to be – it gets a real good pepper crust on it. We sear it off on the grill. It's served rare. Um, you know, being that lean, you don't want to go past a medium or it gets a really ionodistic, uh, dry flavor to it. Pair it with a classic black garlic alago. So instead of using Swiss cheese in it, we're using goat's cheese. So it's got more of that tang, and you got that nice funkiness from the black garlic. The maitake is just sauteed up, and the blueberries are just pickled with a little bit of uh, vinegar that I made in the restaurant from honey that we just steeped overnight well, for a long six months and then mixed that with the blueberries. And then that's served with the Hanatoro Cabernet. So the kangaroo has that body to hold up to that cab. But again, it's a young cab, but it drinks really good right now. So, Awesome. So you said that grilled kangaroo, I'm assuming it might be a little harder to cook for like a beginner because it's t- it's tough or no? No, it's actually really easy to cook in percent. You know, it's it doesn't take long. To, you know, it's if you can do a steak quickly, you can do a kangaroo quickly. It's actually a very tender, lean cut. So, you know, you don't want to go past that medium where it will get dried out. But, you know, if you get a nice hot grill, Mm -hmm. sear it up nice and rare, and then just slice it, it's... I'm really excited to try that. (laughs) I've never had it before. Okay, and then the last but not least, we have dessert. Um, There's two desserts. There's honey and lemon panna cotta with fig, peach jam, and farro. You want to do that one? That one's me. So, um... Again, just try to highlight what's in season in Georgia right now. So we take um, the milk that we're uh, making the panna cotta with and steep it with the honey, the lemon, and a tiny bit of ginger, too. And then we made a fig, ginger, and peach jam to go underneath. And then we take uh, a couple slices of fresh fig and torch them so you get a little textural contrast. And then the same puffaro that we used on the first course, we actually candy some of it as well, and you get this sweet crispy texture on top that sort of gives a, you know, panna cotta can be kind of uniform and one note uh, texturally if you don't do something. So that's why we do the brulee peach and the farro so you get two sort of textural elements with it. Awesome. And then the second dessert, which um, another giveaway, uh, Tim Tam canoe style and cold brew ice cream. So the Tim Tam is an Australian delicacy. Um, 
it's slowly making its way over here, and I'm trying to help it and push it along a little bit further. So it's a milk chocolate-based cookie that is has a chocolate crust, and then it has a milk chocolate filling, and then it's covered with a slightly darker chocolate. And the way you eat it back home is you bite the top and the bottom, and you suck your coffee through it like a little straw. And so that's where the cold brew ice cream comes into it. So I'm trying to give that whole Australian feel and give that little Tim Tam a little classification and make it beard worthy. I love it. You do, do you know if the Tim Tams ever made an appearance at the James Beard House before? I don't think so. I doubt it. Um, and then the pairing with that, um, do you want to? So, yeah, it's the Cletto Chiarli. It's a, it's a rosé Lambrusco. So um, I don't like dessert pairings to be too sweet. So this has a little bit of sweetness to it, but it, it's uh, not overly so. And I think it sort of pairs well with both desserts because I think it plays well with uh, both chocolate and then a, it, it definitely plays well with the like stone fruit and fig and stuff that i have in mind so awesome we serve a lot of this one at the restaurant too great um so i know you guys are very busy and need to get back to the kitchen um i just wanted to ask if there was anybody that you know came with you or that helped um is helping you tonight that you wanted to give a shout out to uh i'd like to thank my sue ryan who's up here helping me and uh my wife back home in Georgia, who's seven months pregnant and chasing our little two-year-old around while I'm up here gallivanting around New York. So thanks, honey. Uh, I need to thank Tobin, who's my exec, Sue, that's up here helping, and Celeste, who's at home looking after three dogs and two cats and keeping the house under control. All right. Well, thank you so much again. Um, I have been speaking to Matthew Basford, the executive chef at Canoe, and Nick Leahy, the chef partner at Salt Yard. They're both chefs from Atlanta, Georgia, and they are going to be cooking their dinner town and country tonight, August 15th, 2017, at the James Beard House in New York City. Um, I am Kat Johnson, and this has been a special episode of Heritage Radio Network on tour.